session with Dr. Farid Hulak. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakri, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Uh, doing Instagram Live for the show, so not taking calls, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get into the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. So um, I just heard about this book. I think it came out about a week ago. And so Heather McGee uh, is an expert in economic and social policy, and she's looking at how much racism costs all of us here in the United States. Um, and I don't know, obviously know much about the book other than that, but it sounds very interesting. And I'm looking forward to reading this and sharing it with you in the next, for next week. So The Sum of Us, Sum, S-U-M, uh, by Heather McGee. Look forward to reading that and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I will talk about tonight is In the Shadow of Young Girls in Flower by Marcel Proust. And this is book two of the seven-volume uh, novel In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. And uh, this was a, a very fascinating read. Again, the first volume was Swan's Way. I talked about a little over a month ago, and though this is the second part. And it was very interesting jumping back into this world and really ju jumping back into the brain, essentially, of Marcel Proust, who in the book, the narrator, who I think we never actually hear his name. No one says his name, but the narrator appears to be him from accounts of people who know of his life. Um, it, it seems to be from his perspective, not exactly his life. He had a brother, and in this book, he is a only child. But we do see very a lot of similarities. But it was a very interesting book, a very in-depth, analytical look at many things related to, as the title, In Search of Lost Time, looking at the passage of time, how things come and go. But lots of... Um, uh, stories that relate to love, falling in love. What does it mean to love someone and what do you feel? A and I think, you know, Marcel Proust, I'll get to some interesting points in the book that can also relate to my own relationship with him now or trying to understand him in the book. But uh, I do highly recommend the book, anyone who likes fiction. It's obviously a commitment to read this book because there's seven volumes, uh, but I'm going to read them over the course of probably this year. So this is the second one I'm reading, but I, I think it's really incredibly in-depth and analytical and you get a lot of insights into different aspects of um, what it is to be human, which any great writer, any novelist must be good at. So what I mentioned about my own relationship with him or through this book, in the first book, we see that he likes this author named Burgot or Burgot, I don't know, it has a French pronunciation, which actually is not a real author. It's a fictional author, uh, a fictional author in this fictional book. Um, but the narrator loves this author and in the first book talks about how much he loves him. And now in the second book, he gets to meet this author. And so what I thought was interesting was he is so enamored and loves this person so much when he finally meets 
um, the author, though, he's a little bit disappointed. In his mind, he's built him up so much, idealized him, and he finds him disappointing in a way how he looks, but also how he talks. So he goes to kind of like, I think it was a dinner party or a lunch party and sees him and is very disappointed. And it was interesting because um, I had that same experience, not of meeting him, but realizing that we can idealize. And so when I'm reading this book, I'm imagining this is Marcel Proust. This is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest novel of all time. So of course, these things that he's saying, everything must be so insightful, so important. It's so good. And so it's interesting that there was this connection that when I was reading him, having this disappointing encounter or realizing how he had idealized someone, not necessarily based on who they actually were, but partially based on reading them and imagining what they were like. Uh, it was uh, something for me to think about of, am I doing the same thing as I read his books, thinking they must be incredible because he is Marcel Proust and I've heard his name as one of the most um uh, you know, important writers of all time. So that that was interesting. But also this theme of idealization comes up throughout the book, both when it comes to people falling in love with someone. So many times we see him as a young man, just catch a glimpse of someone and fall in love or think he's in love. Even one time he chases the person down and sees it's actually this older woman that he knows, but he imagines someone so beautiful. And I think he does a great job throughout the book or something I find really interesting is how he describes the ways we idealize someone and that in a lot of ways when we love someone it's less about them and more about us and how we have idealized them and built them up in our own mind which was quite fascinating um, but so he does that with this author also with this actress he wants to see I don't know if she's actually a real uh, actress I think her name is um, La Burma um, in a performance of Fedre, I don't know if I'm saying that right. And so finally he gets to go see her. And it's a really interesting scene because he's built it up in his mind so much, heard so much about her and how she's so talented. And if you see her perform, it's so incredible. And so the play starts and then finally he sees an actress. He's like, oh, that's her. Look at how incredibly she's moving and the way she's saying things it's so special then another woman comes on stage and he says oh no it this must be la burma this is yes of course how could i think it was that first one it's actually her that is this incredible actress and i see what everyone is talking about and then actually to his disappointment he sees that it's some other actress who he actually doesn't think is very good or you see him experiencing her as kind of flat monotone, not really doing anything extraordinary. And so he has this cognitive dissonance where his idealization is crashing down and he's having a hard time keeping her up on this pedestal that he's built, so to speak. I'm, I'm paraphrasing and adding some of my own thoughts. So if you read it, you might see it a little bit differently, which is, of course, always the case. But he is disappointed to see that she's not that, but wants to keep her in this level. And so when the play ends, he, he is disappointed. And he has these mixed feelings. But we see him chasing this high of putting her on a pedestal again of idealizing her. So when he talks to someone, this gentleman, about the play and saying, uh, in a way, asking him about her, his opinion on her, and then he starts talking about how great she is, he goes back to that feeling, yes, yes, of course, the things she did, I was not really recognizing how good they actually were. But I thought it was a very interesting um, expression of what we experience, the ways we can 
build people up, the ways we can think about things. Even if we listen to art, if I tell you I'm going to play you uh, a song by, this is a, a piece by Beethoven, you're going to react very differently than if I say this is a piece by some unknown artist that never became famous or some artist that you don't like. Um, even I've had this experience sometimes when you hear a song and you kind of like it, but then it's by some maybe pop singer or someone that you don't want to think you would like their kind of music based on how you've already judged them or seen them and you kind of discount how good the song is. So I've definitely recognized I've done that. I'm hearing a song and I'm kind of liking it. But I'm like, oh, but I don't like him or I don't like her. So it makes me not want to like the song as much, which sounds strange if we're just enjoying a piece of art, a piece of music. We would think it's about just enjoying it and the effect it has on us. But we can see it's not just a bottom up type of a thing where you hear something. There's also this part where you are based on your own judgments and things you want to like and not like want to feel and not feel we affect things and so again same thing applies when I'm reading this book or his books I try to be aware of staying as objective as I can knowing that I can't really be objective because I already think I'm reading a great piece of literature this must be very good he is a very good writer so it does of course affect the ways I'm going to experience his book as opposed to if someone said here's this trashy book written by uh, you know someone that was not famous. It's not critically acclaimed. Everyone said it's really bad. I'm sure if it was the same book, I would read it differently. They've even done um, studies where they'll give people wine. And if they tell them it's a very expensive uh, bottle of wine, they'll taste it as much better than if they say it's a cheap bottle of wine, even though they're giving everyone the same wine or they do this with different people. So we see that we're, of course, affected by these things that we would want to say we're not. We just enjoy things based on how good they are but it's obviously not the case. Um, so I thought that was interesting, seeing him chasing this idealization of this actress, even though really has no impact on him, but he had built it up so much when he finally gets to go see her perform, this disappointment and dealing with that disillusionment and how much he's chasing again to make her uh, exceptional again. But we also see the narrator going through his own love affairs of sorts or loving people, and he... Um, Interestingly, the the narrator has some health issues, doesn't really describe or sometimes does, but you don't really know what the specific illness is that makes him weak, makes him unable to do certain things. And Marcel Proust himself uh, suffered from, I believe it was asthma and maybe even allergies or different things that, that made him uh, very weak throughout his life as well. So we can see, again, these parallels between his life, um, Marcel Proust, the writer and the narrator of the, of the books. Uh, but so we see him love uh, Gilbert, Gilbert, I'm not sure how to say the names. It's always interesting when you read a book, um, you read the names and sometimes you don't uh, know what the name really sounds like, especially here, they're French. I can admit one mistake I made was I read the Harry Potter, just a few of the books, and there's Hermione was one of them, no, the most famous probably female character in the books. Um, and I was reading something like Hermione. I don't know. It's spelled kind of differently. So then I finally saw the first movie and I was like, oh, okay, her name is Hermione. I've been saying it wrong in my head all, all this time. So, but you see um, the narrator fall in love with this girl, but then they fall out or they have a falling out and the different ways he approaches even this falling out of imagining when he won't care about her anymore and that makes him happy but in a way but if I don't care about her anymore not thinking about her not missing her doesn't really have value it's almost like you want to have that feeling now and there that reminds me of something I, I've realized myself for working with clients you go through a breakup and you keep 
um, telling, uh, you know, you wonder, will there ever be a day I stop thinking about this person? Will there ever be a time every day I'm thinking about them all day? And the funny or interesting thing is there will be a day where you stop thinking about that person, only you won't know it. Because when you'll realize you've stopped thinking about them is, let's say you've thought about them every day, and then for a week they didn't come to your mind. Finally, when they come to your mind again, then you'll realize, oh, I didn't think about him or her for the last week. So that first day that you never think about them again, of course, you can't realize it because to think about them would be to think about them. Uh, but it was interesting seeing him going through these different um, experiences and thinking of moving on or what that means or what that is like. Um, even he does a great job. You know, it's interesting. He was talking about going to this hotel. So the second half of this book in the shadow of uh, Young Girls in Flower, volume two of In Search of Lost Time, he's spending time in Baalbek, which I think might not be a real town or might be based on some other towns, a beach city. And he goes into his hotel room to sleep for the first night alone. And he talks about how scary the room is in a way. These tall curtains that are just too tall and overwhelming and the way everything looks in the room and how overwhelming it is, how unfriendly it is, unfamiliar. And really that's the key because it's unfamiliar. But then we see as he gets more comfortable in the room, he spent more time, these same things bring him so much comfort and joy. Oh, these tall curtains, it's so nice to have such a high ceiling or high roof or a high ceiling in his room. Those same things that made him feel uncomfortable or unfriendly with familiarity, they become f comfortable, friendly. It feels like home after a while. And then actually it comes to the point where he says he doesn't almost even notice them. They become so much a part of him or they're really not noticeable in a way until again, he's imagining someone coming to to see it. So it's, it's interesting to see the way he does a great job of recognizing the ways we the ways that we experience different things or even ex experience different people um, and then at the end of the book he gets introduced to a group of girls that he's really infatuated with and interested in and starts to approach one of them by the way i know there's some spoilers here the books are i think about 100 years old but still i don't want to spoil too much of it and really the experience of reading the books the story is interesting. You get invested into the characters. Of course, they bring up a lot of feelings. Um, I think there was a movie made of trying to make all seven books into one movie, which I don't know how you can condense so much into one story. But I already imagine I don't want to watch it till I've read all the books. Um, but, you know, you, you do have a connection to the characters. And I already imagine watching them it would be probably be an interesting experience. But you haven't connection to the characters, but really the book is less about what's happening being so interesting. Oftentimes not a lot happens for a while, but what I enjoy and I think is interesting and fascinating is how in-depth he gets into the thinking of, of different individuals, especially the narrator, but getting into how you experience things, how you feel things. Um, out of nowhere, he'll just throw in an analogy that kind of uh, is really uh, surprising. And I, I was thinking about these metaphors and similes and why they're so um, important in literature, but in general, why we, I think, can connect to them so much. And it's because if someone can capture a feeling, but in describing something else and they resonate, it gives you a really good feeling when you can feel that connection. Like I think one time he's talking about one of these girls giving a look and she's looking at him, or I think looking, I forgot exactly the context, but then she looks away or the look leaves her face and then it comes back. And he says, I think something like as if, a, uh, you know, a, the moonlight and then the clouds cover the moon 
momentarily, but then it comes back. And it was just, uh, it kind of hits you like, wow, that's such an interesting and beautiful way of giving that same feeling. And we can imagine that feeling of when you're out and you see the moon and it's beautiful and some clouds cover it and then go away. Um, and then you see that brightness of the moon again, the similar experience of seeing this person's face or just the, the concealment and, and the re- revelation again um, was quite fascinating. And he's obviously, uh, as any great writer will be, uh, a king of metaphors um, and, and different ways of analogies of expressing things. And again, even as I call him a king, I should be careful not to idealize him myself as the narrator does to the to author in the book. Uh, but I look forward to reading the rest of the series, sharing different parts and different parts of my experience. And I always, myself, I've mentioned this past years want to read more literature, but oftentimes I have not done that. Um, and so this year I'm trying to make sure I do read more literature and this will definitely be a big part of that process. Again, this was volume two of In Search of Lost Time, In the Shadow of Young Girls in Flower by Marcel Proust. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I was discussing the book Uh, In the Shadow of Young Girls in Flower by Marcel Proust, which is the second volume of seven in In Search of Lost Time. And so uh, as I was reading the book, this, you know, he goes back, sometimes he's going through different periods of his life. Uh, This book primarily, it seems to be in his adolescence. You never get a direct statement of his age at different times. So sometimes I have a hard time knowing, especially in the first book, was he a young child, an older child? Um, but you don't always exactly know. Uh, but because he's, you know, you feel that he's looking back at his life in some way, um, it made me think of this idea of regret. And it was interesting. I thought of this, and it was maybe because things in the book were triggering it. And then he talks to someone, the narrator, this painter, and the, the painter, I believe that's the part where it comes up, actually talks about regret or it's discussed. And so, you know, it made me think about regret and how we think about regret. I've heard people say, for example, a very common thing you'll hear is, I have no regrets. I remember, I think it was a, a Madonna music video at the end. She said either absolutely no regrets or something. Uh, but it's a, a thing that people like to say in a very confident way. And, and like many issues that I talk about on the show, I, I want to look at it not as black and white, but look at the complexity of regret. So even what does it mean to to regret something? It means that something that has happened now, if, if it's something that's out of our control, that's one thing. But usually we're looking at it from our own perspective of what we've done and feeling bad about something that some behavior we did, or sometimes it's something we didn't do, but in our past and that in some way we wish we could do it differently. So one of the reasons people often give when they say, I have no regrets, is that they say, and it makes sense to say, I don't want to have, I don't have any regrets because everything I went through has led to me being the person that I am today, which does sound good. And I think there's something to that, that I wouldn't say we should reject that. But I think that's why people don't want to say they have regrets, because if I say I have any regrets, that means in some way I am saying, I don't accept this version of me. I should be different than this, which I don't think has to be exactly the case. Um, But I think that's one of the reasons why people don't like to say they have any regrets. One, I think it's because we don't like acknowledging mistakes in general. People don't like to say they did something wrong or I made a mistake. So there's that aspect of it for sure. But I think another part is that they think they're saying in some way, I don't accept me as I am. Because if everything I went through led to me becoming who I am today, then if I have regrets, that means I want to be different than I am today in some way. Um, And I think these things are always complicated, these counterfactuals of, 
who would I have become if I did things differently, if my life took a different course, if I didn't take this action or that action? We can't say we exactly know. So I get the the thinking of it, um, but it's really hard to say what would have happened. And I also think if we really look at it, to think whoever you are today is the best possible version that you could have become of yourself might be a little bit short-sighted um, or just our way of trying to comfort ourselves. But I don't think any of us would think that's true, that we couldn't have become maybe a better version than we are today had we done some things differently, taken different actions, um, put more time into some development of skills or learning about ourselves or doing different things to better ourselves. I don't think any of us could say that we've done every possible thing throughout our life to become the best version of ourselves. But at the same time, hopefully we can accept the person that we are today, but it doesn't mean we have to say that version is perfect. So another thing that I think is almost ridiculous is to say that you couldn't have done anything better in your life than you've done. It's kind of meaningless to really say that. No one actually would say that, but in some ways, when we say we don't have regrets, that's kind of what we're saying. And that's the part that I don't think makes sense. If you hurt your child in some way, you would say, I'm not going to change that. I have no regrets. I would be okay with what I did. I would hope you even can regret that knowing you still might be a good father or mother, but that you can regret some of the things that you did with your children, even in trying your best. Um, we shouldn't think that it somehow makes you less of a person to acknowledge that. Just like in anything, if you don't acknowledge mistakes or acknowledge that you could have done better, that to me is a bigger problem. I, I sometimes work with parents in therapy, and I've heard before they'll say things like, oh, I'm, I'm a perfect mom. Believe me, I'm a perfect mom or a perfect dad. And that doesn't tell me they're a very good mom or dad. It just makes me aware that they're not aware of where their own weaknesses and shortcomings are in their parenting. It doesn't say they're stronger as a parent. If anything, that itself would mean a weakness in their parenting, that they're not aware of what they're doing wrong, how they could be better. It would in some ways say that they didn't improve over the course of being a parent, of learning from things that they have done, none of which would actually be a strength. But we at times think that if we're not doing something perfectly or if we acknowledge mistakes, we're somehow acknowledging something bad or weak or that we're not, we are bad rather than that we've made mistakes and we've tried to learn from them. Um, another way of looking at regret, which I think is important, is would I do that same thing again? And so this is where I think it's kind of ridiculous to not have regrets in that way. If you were put in the same situation again, would you do something that hurt someone else especially? Now, hurting yourselves, ourselves, that's complicated, and we could take full responsibility for that, but is it okay to think we hurt someone else and we would do that again? Um, I remember, I think it was, I don't know his name, but the guy who, one of the people who created The Secret, um, and you know, he got a lot of fame and notoriety, and then he did these retreats where people would go into like, these sweat lodges and do different things and have these experiences. And on one of those retreats, it got too hot. And I think at least one, I think a few people actually died. Uh, and I remember seeing this documentary on him a couple years ago. So I don't want to, don't quote me exactly on everything. But I remember, I think at the end they played this, which was really interesting. I think it was smart that they put it at the end because it's powerful. They asked him if he had any regrets about that. And he said something along the lines of what I've said people often respond of, no, because if that's what I needed to learn those lessons, 
then I don't regret that that happened, which to me is just kind of crazy. Again, I don't know exactly that's what he said, but when people say things like this, it, it to me, it's surprising to say that people should have died for you to learn some lesson or for you to grow. That was the only way. There, there was no other way for you to learn that lesson, or maybe even if it would have taken longer, isn't that maybe more fair than for people to have died for you to learn your lesson or to grow from that? So I think I, I get the sentiment of saying I don't have regrets. And even in the book, the person was saying something like that in some ways of, well, you know, making mistakes and going through things, that's how you grow. And that part of it I like, to recognize the mistakes that you've made um, or to, to go through things, make mistakes. I was I'm encouraging parents to let their children make mistakes because they need to go through things themselves to learn and grow from them. So here's again where it gets complex. What's something we should experience and grow from? What's something that we should not have done or we should do differently? I don't think it's so black and white, but I think it's something worth thinking about. And I would hope that if people reflect on their life, they would see things that they wish they did differently, especially if it hurt someone else, that we can't just say, well, this is my growth and my life and my experience. And if people got hurt or something happened to them, so be it. I've grown from it. So doesn't matter. So I think we have to let go of this mindset that if I am to say I regret something, I'm rejecting myself as I am. It's more complicated than that. And who you are is more than just exactly this person that if yesterday, you know, you watch 20 minutes less TV or 30 minutes more this or that, you'd be someone totally different right now. What does that exactly mean? I think it's a little bit complex and something that to me is not so accurate to say that you're just a different person if you've done anything differently. Yeah, some big things will impact your life, but to say you would have been better or worse, it's a little bit more complicated than I think to know what was going to happen. Now, what I think is important is, again, so we look back, we might learn, what if you're in that same situation? I would hope you do something different. That's what we talk about experiences, learning from what we've done. I did that. If I'm in that position again, I would hope I would do it differently, which means we think what we did was wrong. Now, maybe we wouldn't have learned it had we not done it. That's the part that's hard to say, but I think we can recognize I regret hurting someone, and I would hope that we do. Now, the way I think would be more healthy is to recognize our regrets in our past mistakes, but to have gone through a process of forgiving ourselves for those past mistakes. So we recognize we did something wrong, but at first we might have some guilt, maybe even some shame, but some guilt about what we've done. But we go through a process of acknowledging, becoming aware of, and forgiving ourselves for what we've done which is a process. It's easy to just tell everyone, oh, you should forgive yourself because that's healthier. I think that's true, just like it's healthier for us to go through the process of genuinely forgiving others as well. But it's not something that's just automatic or we can just say, because it's good, you should do it. It's a real genuine thing, just like a bone is broken. Yes, it's better for it to be healed, but it has to actually heal. We can't just want it to be healed or wish that it's healed or start walking on that broken leg as if it's okay now because we want it to be okay because a solid bone is better than a broken bone. So similarly, things like forgiveness, it's a process. But to me, that's the healthier stage to be in, is to have recognized, acknowledged, and forgiven ourselves for the things that we have done, rather than imagining or pretending like we never did anything wrong. And this is because that's the relationship we have with ourselves. Similarly, 
if you're in a romantic relationship, the healthier relationship isn't the one where they say we have no regrets, no one's done anything wrong in this relationship, we haven't hurt each other. No, the healthier relationship is the one where you actually acknowledge the mistakes you have made, share them or whoever it is. If you've been hurt, you might share it. If the person recognized they did it, bring it up. You work through it and you forgive the person, whoever was the one that was hurt by the other, forgives that person. And the relationship is actually stronger because of it. It's not a stronger relationship if they never bring anything up. That's actually a very weak relationship. If no one is allowed to say that they were hurt or no one is allowed to say that they made a mistake. So we could take that same thing and bring it to understanding ourselves and hopefully recognizing past mistakes but forgiving ourselves, oftentimes recognizing we did the best we could in that moment. So I'm not really disappointed in my judgment. Sometimes we knew better and we did the wrong thing, but sometimes we didn't know any better. So we can forgive ourselves easily in that time, maybe than another, but still we can hopefully forgive ourselves for all of those, all the actions that we have done if we feel that we need to forgive ourselves. But I hope we can acknowledge and recognize them. And to me, that's a more mature state than to say, there's nothing to regret in my life. Overall, you can accept yourself and your life, but it doesn't mean that you wouldn't see anything that could have been done differently. Now, also, I wanted to add a last part that even if you regret something you did or in a, even a state you were in, let's say you got to a really low point in your life. Oftentimes when people want to move forward, they think they have to reject fully those past versions of themselves uh, and pretend like they weren't really there or they weren't, uh, you know, me. Oh, that was a different person. It's not even me anymore. But I would hope that we can accept and love all the parts of yourself, all even the versions of yourself, even when you were not in your best place to realize that still is you. So in that way, you are still carrying that person who won whatever you did that was coming from, let's say, a place of weakness or you're making poor judgment that you don't feel good about, but also recognizing that that's still part of the memories and experiences you have that you still carry with you. And generally, when we look at psychological health, rather than rejecting and getting rid of either certain emotions or experiences or aspects or versions of ourselves, the healthier one is the person who can bring all those pieces together into a cohesive whole. So yes, I, you know, I'm disappointed in some of those decisions I made or I got to that point, but I recognize that's still part of me. Let's say maybe I was not um, working hard enough in my school. That was me who was too much of my, let's say, inner child was trying to play and not get to work. Or maybe I didn't believe in myself or maybe whatever it was was keeping me from doing what I needed to do. But I've learned from it. And again, it doesn't mean no regrets. I would do that again, but I've learned from it and I can love and accept that version of myself too, or that aspect of myself. And it's still within me, but I've learned how to balance it with the other parts of myself to create a healthier life for myself. So we don't have to reject that part. That was me being so horrible, so bad. We can have compassion for ourselves and whatever we have done. Even if we recognize we made mistakes, just like we can do for other people when we forgive them, it's not to say that they're perfect and we don't recognize their mistakes, but it's that we see it. And because we are human and we know that they are human, we can forgive them for what they have done once we've accepted that and we can hopefully move on and accept that. So I think it's interesting reading this book and looking at life and our own lives and reflecting on things. 
we might have regrets. And I think it's understandable to hopefully get to a place where we can recognize the things we've done. We can have regrets in the sense that we would have done things differently if we we're faced in a similar situation again. And we're especially sorry if we hurt others and also hurt ourselves. That's another person that the person we hurt the most generally in our lives is ourselves. So we hopefully will recognize we wish we didn't hurt ourselves, but we can understand as a whole who we are and what we've experienced and love ourselves and accept ourselves just like we could for someone else. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, during the break, uh, a client was um, asking a question, or sorry, not client, I was trying to turn off the fan. <laughs> that, that maybe come, came off really bad, but someone on the um, Instagram in the comments asked the question about parents and, and forgiveness, and if their kids are not... Um, you know, think they're doing something wrong. And I think that could be a very challenging thing for people to to deal with. And, and I was saying during the break uh, to, to the Instagram live feed that you definitely want to apologize to your kids and it's very important that you do so. Uh, a lot of times parents think because, and this could be a cultural thing, but not, you know, not just a cultural thing, maybe all cultures have some of this. Well, that as the parents, there's some kind of authority, which there is, but that that should mean that there's, no need to apologize because you're the parents. What you did was right. And so I think it's such an important thing from a young age to show your your kids that, first of all, it's okay to acknowledge doing something wrong. So saying some, you did something wrong doesn't mean you're bad or you should feel horrible. You should have some feeling of guilt or remorse about it. But you don't have to feel horrible. And it's okay. We all make mistakes. But acknowledging like, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry I did this. And I can see how that hurt you or hurt your feelings. Um, ask them how they feel about it and then let them know you don't want to do that again. And so I've seen in almost every family, I think it's so common that conflict is not dealt with well, that we haven't had a lot of experience where people bring something up, can talk about it, can discuss their feelings, can be sad or upset by something that someone can apologize and it leads to somewhere good. Unfortunately, most families, especially most Iranian families, it's very black and white. Either you hold things in and hide them or they blow up. That's kind of a generalization, but very often that's what happens. And unfortunately, it further reinforces this idea that holding things in is good because look how bad it got when we talked about things. It's much better just to hold it in and not say anything. And then so that continues. And this breeds uh, fear of conflict, avoiding conflict. And I've talked about this before the show, uh, before on previous shows, avoiding conflict is avoiding closeness. You can't get that close if you are not willing to embrace and have conflict. So it's very important to show your kids. Um, and actually in the book, I think it was in Think Again by Adam Grant, he talked about how actually when, uh, you know, it's not about if you fight in, 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 in the families, it's um, how it's dealt with. So if it's dealt with in a healthy way, it's actually good for there to be conflict. Even if the kids see you disagreeing uh, as parents, if it's done in a respectful, calm way, and especially if you can show them a resolution, that shows them that, you know, conflict is this, it's actually a good thing. Conflict is necessary. Conflict is indispensable to life. How can we always want the same things, agree on everything, feel good about everything. It's just not possible. So we have to accept right off the bat that there has to be conflict in our relationship for it to be healthy. It's just 
natural. And if we don't have it, it's actually something unnatural. So I'll joke with couples that come in sometimes and they'll say, oh, you know, we've been together um, for two years and we've never fought before. And I say, I'm sorry to hear that because that's telling me something's wrong in the relationship if they've really had no arguments. Now, when I say arguments, I don't mean you have to yell and say mean things. No, there's never, uh, you never need to have any disrespect or any type of aggression in that sense. That's actually unhealthy. What I mean is there has to be disagreements. There have to be things that we bring up that we don't like. That's just natural and normal and necessary. And I think parents have a big responsibility, so many responsibilities, but one of uh, another key one that sometimes can get overlooked is having healthy conflict in the home, which is, as always the case, as parents, you have to first look at yourself and your own uh, feelings about conflict. Do you avoid it? Which most of us do. How uh, comfortable are you with it? Do you um, not want to bring things up because you don't like it? It makes you feel uncomfortable. Do you bring things up in a passive aggressive way? That's not good. And your kids could pick up on that. So you have to deal with your own issues related to conflict and potential conflict avoidance and fear of conflict. Uh, and then try to make that a healthy aspect of your life that it's okay. And that's why you have to make it okay for your children to let you know they're upset with you. And, and a lot of very authoritarian type of parenting styles and traditional parenting styles in most, most cultures, including the Iranian culture, has this authoritarian mindset where who are the kids to say something to the mother or father that they are upset about something they did. And I think that's actually very unhealthy. You definitely are um, the authority as the mother and the father of the kids and you have to maintain that role maintain that structure even maintain some of that power in order to make the family run and give that security to the children but what i think is important is that we recognize that power that you have should be used in service of the children not to serve your own ego or your own needs but unfortunately power tends to make us want to take advantage of it for ourselves. Okay, I have this power, so I can tell the kids to do whatever I want to tell them, and I'm never going to be wrong in this household, and I can you know, tell them to do things and they have to do it, but they can never say a thing to me. No, you actually should have it as I have the authority to run this household. I have to use it as a responsibility to help my children grow, to develop, to become the best version of themselves. Just like a teacher, the teacher definitely deserves a level of authority and control over the classroom to make things run. But again, he or she should be using that in service of the children's education and development, not to feel good about themselves or for them to get some kind of attention or, you know, to feel good about that. And we see that, and I've talked about this before on the show, that parents, especially, you have to make sure you're not a dictator in your own home because everything is set up for you to be one. You have power. There's very little accountability. There's a huge power dynamic, both physically, mentally, emotionally, in every way uh, over your kids. They feel much more dependent on you. You're not dependent on them. Um, of course, you care about them so much emotionally, you might feel dependent that if something ever happened to them, but they, from a young age especially, are literally dependent on you to live, so to speak. So there is a lot set up to allow you to take advantage of that power. So you have to be careful that you don't let that power get to your head or be used in the wrong way because you know power usually corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if you use or are given power, you have to be very careful in how you utilize or use that power. Um, so thank you. That was a question that came up um, during the commercial break. But, um, you know, since I mentioned power, there's something I wanted to talk about 
um, related to power. So this also came to me when I was reading this book about regret, when I mentioned things like that. You know, we talk about the power of the mind. Um, and it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think, of course, that the mind is very powerful in the ways from placebo effects and how they're affecting nocebo effects. There's so many different ways that we, um, our mind can do so much, good and bad. But usually when people say um, the power of the mind, they a lot of times will use it in the sense of saying, now I, I'm capable of doing something. And what I think is interesting is, and I think it makes sense in some ways, but it also has some level of being paradoxical. Because so what they're saying is like, I've realized I can actually uh, do this great thing, you know, reading this book, let's say, so I can write this, my, the novel that I didn't think I could write, or I can uh, do something that I thought impossible. But what usually is happening is, although yes, now they've gone to this point where they've let the power of their mind do something, what we sometimes are missing is, the sequence of events, which is at first what happened was they actually were limiting themselves using the power of the mind also. So we all carry these self-limiting beliefs. I can never do this. I am only this way. Um, no one will like me. No one loves me. Or I, this kind of thing won't work out with for me. This kind of job I can never have. Or I can't do art. Or I can't do whatever it is. So we have these self-limiting beliefs that feel like absolute truths. Even sometimes people have these types of beliefs like I'm unlovable. And it feels very real. Um, and they've been developed from a little bit of data, you know, you've maybe had a few experiences or in childhood, let's say you experienced something and you made some conclusion that felt like a hard and fast rule. And that was the mind that came to that conclusion and made that decision. And now it's a self-limiting beliefs. And something that we all have to look at in our lives is recognizing what are my self-limiting beliefs, because we all have them. And we don't realize we have them because they feel so real. Just like if I tell you there's gravity, you say there's gravity. You don't think you can fly. But there are self-limiting beliefs that feel just as true as this power of gravity, but are not true at all or are something that we have created. And on last Wednesday's show, I talked about this topic of how we actually are at times afraid to know ourselves better or see different aspects of ourselves that we haven't experienced. So I was making the connection to when we are in a romantic relationship, often people will say that they get bored of their partner. But one of the reasons that happens is we're pretending or trying to tell ourselves we're bored of them because we think we know them completely, when the reality is no one could fully ever know someone. One, because that's impossible even to know someone in a moment. Two, because people are evolving constantly. And three, even there's aspects of themselves that haven't been revealed. So they're much more complex and complicated for you to say you actually know them completely. But to give our sense a sense of stability and security, we tell ourselves, oh, I know that person. I know my partner completely. And in that way, we make them boring to give ourselves that safety. So we essentially trade passion for stability. But unfortunately, the result of that stability and security is boredom. And so what I was arguing on, on Wednesday or talking about on Wednesday was that we also do that with ourselves. We think, I already know myself. I can't do this. I can't do that. And part of it is that it's a little bit scary to get out of that comfort zone and try something new. What if you can do this and now you know there's going to be some pressure to do that because you have this skill or this talent? Or you're telling yourself, I can't be in relationships partially to protect yourself. But now if you do, you have to deal with all the anxieties that come with being close to someone. 
So I think we definitely use this as a way of staying in our comfort zone, telling ourselves, I already know me. I know I, I don't like that. I can't do that. I would never do that. I wouldn't enjoy this. Things that we haven't done before predicting. And we know very often as, as humans, we're bad at predicting what we're going to feel when something happens, affective forecasting. So they say, oh, what would you feel like if you get that promotion? And you say, oh, my God, I'm going to be over the moon. And maybe you're not that happy or you're actually even happier than you thought. Or what would you do if you had you know, won the lottery or became uh, had this like medical illness? And we, we pro- project what we think we're going to feel, but we're actually not very good at doing it. So in life, we have to. Uh, encourage ourselves to experience different things because you sometimes don't know that you might actually enjoy something or you might actually really be good at something or really want to do something more, but you won't know until you do it. So coming back to this power of the mind, it's interesting for me because I was thinking about how there is a, a some something we're missing there because yes, it is the power of the mind, but the power of the mind also is what created that limiting belief, that self-limiting belief that I can't do this thing. And then what we're actually doing is we're kind of taking those breaks off. So we're using that same mind that actually created that self-limiting belief to then take off that self-limiting belief and realize it wasn't true. Um, It was actually something I was telling myself. You know, sometimes I would realize that I had this image of someone and they're saying, you know, you can't stop me. You can't stop me. You think you can stop me, but you can't stop me. And then they realize they're looking in the mirror they have been stopping themselves. They have been telling themselves you can't do it, Uh, tying their hands, not letting them, let's say, leave a room, you know, imagining this kind of you've been imprisoned and you can't do something. So very often we are the ones who are stopping ourselves more than anyone else is. Of course, there are real ways that people get oppressed and, and, and treated in certain ways and not given opportunity. So that's very real too. I'm not speaking about that. But again, all of us have these self-limiting beliefs that we've imposed on ourselves. So when we say the power of the mind, we're actually in a way saying, letting the mind get out of our way or that if you want to call it ego or certain beliefs, whatever that might be, getting out of the way of ourselves to let myself be at my full potential. You're, you're pushing at something and you're telling yourself you can't push anymore. The example that came into my mind, I'll try to say it quickly because there's a few minutes left. I remember I would go to this gym. Um, a good friend of mine, Sina and his cousin Shirin, they actually told me about it. This is now years ago. And there was um, the you know different weights and things was all kind of machine weights. And on the bench press, I would do it and, you know, I would do like 220. And I thought it was pounds. And 220 pounds bench press, if you're doing it, you know, eight times, which is what the reps were at that gym, and then lowering the weight, that's pretty good. And I, I realized I wasn't going past a certain number because in my mind, it was a lot. I went like maybe 240, 260. I don't remember the exact numbers that I was at that point. And I felt like this is, I mean, that's a lot. Uh, again, um, maybe for some people, it won't be a lot. But for generally speaking, that's a pretty good amount to do for bench press. And I think I told myself that was a lot. And I really felt like I couldn't do any more. And then I remembered maybe it even was seen or they told me that it's not really pounds. It's kind of like their own measurement system. It wasn't quite kilograms, even though they were like a, I don't know if it was an uh, Irish company. But anyway, it wasn't, kilo, but it was really not tied to weight. And when I joined, when I was continuing in that gym, then I started going up and up all the way to the maximum, which was like 460 or 480, not pounds again. But it was interesting how I would almost in some ways doubled or close to doubled how much I was able to lift because there was a self-limiting belief I had that this is already 
too much or this is already a lot. There's no way I can go past that. But really, it was just based on what I thought was this reality, which wasn't the case. So in that case, in a lot of ways, we see how much we feel we can push, how much we feel we can do. We think now I've unleashed something, but interestingly, it's we're getting out of our own way. The power of the mind was what stopped us, and now we're using that same power in a way, or using that same mind, I should say, to take off that that self-limiting belief and recognize I had more potential and I was limiting myself. So it's interesting when you say the power of the mind. Yes, it's some, it's very powerful. But a lot of times what we're talking about there is recognizing how the power of the mind was stopping us, was putting that belief. Now we're using that same mind to unlock that. So it is important for each of us to look at ourselves and recognize what are those self-limiting beliefs I have imposed on myself? What is it that I've told myself I can't do or I only can do this much? And sometimes we can even realize there might be reasons why, which I won't get into some of the things that might be happening, but being afraid to shine when you're shine, you might be a threat to other people. When you do really well, you now might have more pressure to do certain things or you get yourself in certain situations that might be a little bit scary, but you're limiting yourself in what you do and what you think you can do. So think about what it is that you're limiting yourself, where you came up with these beliefs. We can challenge them. The power of the mind made those beliefs. We can use that same mind to release ourselves from those beliefs and go further than we thought we could. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dralakwi. Have a wonderful night.